Victoria episode of Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty have never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and there's no Charlie in the studio tonight as he is instead... Uh, listening to Sarah Henderson and Kevin Donnelly opine about the state of the education system. Poor thing. Godspeed, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing it so we don't have to. Instead, I'm so delighted to welcome back uh, contributing editor at The Monthly, Rachel Withers. G'day, Rachel. Hello. Wonderful to be back. And we are incredibly excited to introduce a brand new voice to the Spin Cycle lineup. Mianjin editor Esther Anatolidis is in the house. Hello. Great to Welcome, be here. Esther. This Thanks. is so exciting. Ah, super exciting for me too. We're going to be joined by former editor of the monthly Nick Fike to discuss his uh, recent essay on whistleblowers, brilliantly titled "Whistle While We Work," and the brilliance doesn't stop there. It's a fantastic piece. So, looking forward to getting into that. But first, our messed up property market has produced a slew of pieces. Uh, in nine papers this this week that are kind of equally messy <laughs> when you look at them on balance. I was kind of impressed to see Domain go deep on the rental crisis, crisis on the weekend, but then they seem to uh, reassess their allegiances a little bit and on Monday uh, released uh, somewhat of a won't someone think of the landlord's piece. Rachel, what was it about this piece uh, that sent Twitter aflame? Yes, well, this piece that was in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age um, – was basically a piece looking at landlords and who are Australia's landlords and, you know, breaking down misconceptions you might have about landlords. So it was called Fiona Martin (laughs) is a typical landlord, but she's not what you expect. Um, And we open with this... um, Well, uh, uh, describe the image first. Oh, it's a a mother and her two children sitting on the couch. um, Looking quite earnest. Yeah, there's a dog. There's a dog. (laughs) They they seem very down to earth. Um, And then you hear about Fiona... Um, who lives in a rented home that she can't afford to buy, but luckily her rent is subsidised by income from a modest investment property she's paying off. So so she is a landlord, (laughs) but she's a renter as well. Um, And basically, you know, we hear about about Fiona and how she's actually – um, you know, the typical Australian landlord, which is not not super well off, you know, mum and dad investors. Landlords um, are doing it tough, guys. Yeah, won't someone think of the landlords? <laughs> um, and we, we, we also start to hear about how it's actually getting harder and harder to be a landlord um, with, you know, interest rates mm. and it's just a pain to manage them. Um, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. Um, it does flag that she is a um, real estate vendor advocate, but what it didn't that mention. is the first red flag of many. <laughs> uh, what it didn't mention, and um, this became apparent very quickly on Twitter, is uh, that she was actually a member of the Australian Landlord Landlords Association Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, so that wasn't mentioned. So that immediately raised a few red flags for people. Um, this, you know, this story really became the story of the day on Twitter. Um, and so there's a line in it that just feels like it's directly out of an Australian Landlords Association press release <laughs> where it's, while Australian landlords are often portrayed as affluent aristocrats, Martin is more typical of the more than 80% of the rental market owned by individuals or mum and dad investors. And it's actually, that's a quote from the Australian Landlord yes. Association <laughs> president. So we, we, he gets a title. 
all. But um, Fiona, who is our typical landlord... Uh, I just accidentally forget to mention yes. that she's on the committee. So there was a clarification issued and an update to the piece. But I think there were other issues with the piece beyond just forgetting to mention a very key fact about Fiona Martin. Um, it really was trying to portray Australian landlords as like, you know, salt of the earth, working class people. It goes through the top occupations of landlords. Um, they might surprise you, you know, it's it's the general manager, the school teacher, um, the chief executive or managing director, I think that's probably a bit more expected, the registered nurse and the accountant. Um, but then a bit further on you actually... Well, who did that research? Well, Like this it, is what I... St- you used to have to start questioning everything when they failed to mention... I mean, in that case, you're actually going by pure numbers. Mm. Those are the top landlord occupations. But if you go according to percentage, like mm. what which occupations have the most landlords within them, surgeon is at the top. Oh, no, sorry, anaesthetist. <laughs> anethys- 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 I'm not even going to try anethys- to say that word again. Because <laughs> why I need a Greek on the show. <laughs> um, and you can see the chart moving around, but it's all, you know, surgeon, psychiatrist, dental practitioner, school principal, um, it's, it's what you'd expect. Mm. Um, and then we also hear a lot about how um, landlords are actually, a lot of them are losing money on their mm. investment properties. And I think that's the one that's the one that people really took issue with. Um, it sort of reads as a defence of negative gearing. Um, you know, the poor landlords are actually doing us a favour by providing, um, you know, rental properties. Um, a fact which it's a community com- service. Completely ignores the fact that they're making massive capital gains mm. on owning housing um and then of course um are also subsidizing their losses through uh offsetting their taxes um oh it really is just extraordinary this this continued normalization of someone's home being someone else's investment and what's startling i think about this piece is that all of that so easily debunkable why give us this spin why put this woman forward mm. um, why not be clear about who she was and why um, it's so relatively easy to expose uh, what she is and why can we not just have a responsible conversation about what needs to happen with housing in Australia and also I think that the, that's a really great point and it happens all the time mm. you know there's constantly a couple of months ago, a few months ago, it was um, SBS were featuring the crying pharmacist who happened to be, oh. you know, the president of the Pharmacists Guild or whatever it was. And then the least sympathetic man I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when there was, uh, we, we've seen a lot of um, bad faith um, people putting themselves forward in when there was the supposed crisis or the sort of confected crisis in the Northern Territory and media would jump on someone who was supposedly a local and had seen all of this stuff themselves and then, of course, a little bit of checking from people, you know, who might live there and just say, hey, that doesn't sound right or this all sounds a bit convenient and it all comes apart. It's like why do, why do news organisations continually put forward these kind of bad faith actors in these pieces when it is so easily debunked. Well, I mean, it seems so clear that this piece sort of came from the Landlords Association and they are kind of 
mounting a bit of a campaign here. Obviously, we don't have any actual policies on the table yet from the government to address this uh, negative gearing. This negative gearing issue. Um, but, but post, post your te- the Teals conversation last week, it is something that there is uh, pressure from independents yeah, to review. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of talk about it. There's there's internal push inside Labor to mm. change it so that you can only negative gear negatively gear one property, one investment property rather than, you know, as many as you like. And I think this piece was really trying to be like, oh, but, you know, look at the landlords, the the mum and dad investors with just one one little property, 80% of them just have one little property. But what I um, quickly tweeted out was a piece from earlier this year from The Guardian pointing out that 1% of Australian taxpayers own nearly a quarter of all investment properties. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's what we're talking about when Mm, we're talking about the the problem and the people hoarding housing in this country and treating it, you know, treating what it should be a human right as a, an investment um, that is basically what defines wealth in this country yeah. at this point. That's the scale. That's the statistic that we need to be hearing. You know, on the one hand, I kind of think, okay, um, those industry groups, well, you know, good on you. Get out there. Get the PR out there. You want to influence policy. You know, of course you want to get your good story out in the media. But what's going on? I mean, is it a sort of a balance of what I keep seeing as, you know, this new shamelessness? We're just going to give it a go because it'll have its media cycle, the spin cycle. It'll mm. go for 24 hours. It'll go for 12 hours. Maybe that's enough for them Mm. to achieve what they wanted to before the backlash. But then also, let's look at what's happened in the media the last five years, ten years. How many fewer investigative journalists there are? Um, How much pressure there is to... To, to produce copy, you know. That's right. I mean, that's right. It's awkwardly, this it's guy there. is an investigative journalist. This journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald who's put wow. this piece together, his title is investigative journalist. And it, it's just, he's obviously, he's, he's also pulled some data and he's spoken to a, a housing policy expert. Um, and that expert was quite a good one and, and pointed out what was wrong with the system and how it advantages the older generations. But at the end of the day, the piece was framed in exactly the way that Obviously, mm. the Landlord Association wanted it framed. Yeah. They did uh, add a caveat afterwards. They did um, add a note that um, she was part of the... Oh, yeah, they did put up a clarification. Did they say... Afterwards. But yeah. your, your piece is sort of completely undermined at that point. If yeah, you haven't, right. If you haven't mentioned that up front and she's your case study, she's your sympathetic landlord and you haven't flagged that she is part of, a, you know, a lobby group, basically, mm. I mean, your, your, your argument is dead. There was a good piece uh, in the but in nine papers on Saturday, on the weekend, and it was in um, Domain, which is usually the you know <laughs> is just it's almost like la 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 la. There's no property crisis. <laughs> Look at these beautiful properties. <laughs> Everything's Look great. This, yeah, I know. So it was really great to see um, a, a quite long, detailed piece. Um, the headline. Um, Millie's rental application was successful until this question was raised and it talks about the pressure on renters not to um, raise any issues about anything that um, needs to be fixed, whether anything from mould to leakage or anything like that, the way that the rental market is. Obviously, it's just so stacked against them and, and they'll be able to find someone else. And it was a really long detailed piece, so I wondered mm. whether it was like a little bit of payback, you know. <laughs> 
Although, do you know, it's really curious. The property sections of the big papers, and particularly the nine papers, um, it's something that is talked about in the arts increasingly. We tend to see often um, some arts coverage in the property section. Mm. Perhaps oh. it'll be um, an installation. Perhaps it'll be something that is, um, you know, kind of a, um, a, a place-making piece, something that is particular to a, you know, a locale, a region, a suburb. Um, well, that's and of nice. course, <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? Because those journalists, they've got the advertisers and yeah. they've, they've got the money. Yeah. And, um, isn't that interesting? And on the other hand, um, they've got the... Um, uh, the, the eyeballs of a lot of people looking for somewhere to live. Mm. And so, God, on the one hand, you think, OK, there's, there's some journalists there thinking a bit imaginatively about what is the politics, the arts, the, the, the culture of the kind of, you know, quote-unquote content, you know how much I hate that word, <laughs> that people look for on the domain websites. On the other hand, it's, right, how much can we kind of, you know, draw out, manipulate, uh, exploit this as the basis of commercial media? Where the rivers of gold? go into <laughs> property um, that's right into um you know domain uh realestate.com.au and those other platforms that undermined uh the income sources of news for everyone it's interesting isn't it but unfortunately to bring us all back down to earth there was one last piece wasn't there oh there was one today that just was sort of the icing on the cake for this week um mm. uh, <laughs> Banker, mum or dad, be warned if your kids haven't bought a home by their early 30s. Um, basically some research showing that, you know, if you don't buy a home by your early 30s, it's less and less likely um, as time goes by that you'll ever be a homeowner. So basically warning <laughs> warning the bank of mum and dad to get in there and, and get your kids a house, which is, I don't know that that's the solution to this, you know, like get in there quick before someone else does. Um, well, it just sort of cements the fact that in it, it, it property is inherited now unless unless there's something changes, something dramatically changes, the majority of it will be from, you know, inherited income. But, I mean, imagine reading this as someone in their early 30s who doesn't have the bank of mum and dad mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's basically saying, sorry, this is directed to the bank of mum and dad, not to the potential riots in their 30s yeah. you're you're you know fresh out of luck we're not talking we're not even talking to you yeah bank of mum and dad they're the landlords there we go we've come oh, full circle god <laughs> melbourne's own triple r the house just got a little bit fuller in here um because we've been joined <laughs> by nick fike a writer who has contributed to the age the saturday paper the drum the economic Economist Intelligence Unit on Politics, Environmentalism, Economics and Popular Culture. He was formerly the editor of The Monthly and formerly my boss. Um, (laughs) And he has written a new essay for the magazine called Whistle While We Work, looking into the state of whistleblower law in this country. Um, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, So I guess first question for you, what drew you to this topic? Well, I was talking to Kieran Pender, who um, was someone that I used to commission. He was a great writer um, and a lawyer uh, who I occasionally, he occasionally wrote for The Monthly and, you know, a lovely guy. And I was talking to him after I'd left and he was saying, oh, you know, what are you doing? And I was asking him what he was up to and he said, I'm starting up this whistleblower legal centre. I was like, that is such a great idea. Mm. It was one of it's like you got me from the title. Well, the, the title is different now, but <laughs> but the idea was just such a great idea that they that they would represent whistleblowers, 
and uh, that there are, that, you know, because there's no protection for whistleblowers, they almost always end up destitute. Um, and, you know, they're so important. As a as an editor, I'd sort of realised how many stories had come from whistleblowers, mm. you know, that had changed whole policy areas across the country. And um, so I just said to him, look, um, uh, you know, let me know if when it's opening. I'd love to write about it. And he said, you know, please do. And... And I said, you know, I'd love to speak to some real live live whistleblowers. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of them are still alive if, if in prison. No, that um, he, I, I wanted to speak to people who were sort of going through the process mm-hmm. as, as I was writing about it to sort of get a sense of, you know, the psychology of people who were blowing the whistle and what it had cost them and what their trajectories were and... The really interesting thing for me that that sort of got me immediately was the commonality of mm. their experiences. It was about how they'd kind of come in and they'd just been, you know, they'd come into a job and they'd seen something at work that didn't seem right and they'd reported it up the chain. Uh, in some cases, it was a legal obligation to report it, as in if you see abuse and you're a, you know, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and there's kids involved, you have to report it. If you're a CEO you know, in, a, in a, a shire council and there's corruption, you have to report it. All these things, you know, normal people report wrongdoing when they see it. And you know, to almost to a person, the whistleblowers I spoke to said, "I never intended to. I never intended to be a whistleblower. I don't even like the word. Most of them don't like it." They said, "I just had to do it. I didn't really have a choice. Uh, you can't walk past certain things." And you know, what the one of the people that I spoke to um, had been a former client of Kieran Penders, and uh, she was a clinical psychologist uh, who went landed a job at the Ashley Youth Detention Centre in Tasmania and she arrived there and, you know, her her story is kind of harrowing because she had, you know, she was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and she arrives and suddenly she sees immense amounts of, of, you know, I'm not going to gloss over it, child abuse Mm. happening in a detention centre. It was her obligation to do it. No one else was was reporting it and she was like, well, I I have to. It's like it's the law for Mm. one thing. Uh, but no one else had been doing it because of this culture of 20 years of covering this stuff up. No one cared. And she kept reporting it up the line. Uh, she eventually was sort of harassed out of her job by her colleagues. Um, the government essentially tried to shut her down in every way that they could. Um, they wouldn't give her proper workers' comp without her signing an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, they would make her sit through endless psychological evaluations to prove that she was you know to prove that she was sufficiently damaged to That's receive compensation and shocking. just a shocking story and it was so it was so kind of common that this experience and there's so few ways that people can remedy it as well. There was a commission of inquiry called eventually in Tasmania wasn't there and um the Asia who we're talking about um, gave evidence. And I think this is something that I find quite, um, you know, so 
what's kind of sad for whistleblowers is there's this catch-22 in that um, the inside information or the, what they've reported is sometimes the only way to identify and prosecute corruption because it is being covered up by other people. But then that just makes them a walking target forever because they are then called upon to provide that evidence in order to make any kind of systemic change and suddenly that target becomes massive. Yeah, and in, in almost every case that I spoke to, the whistleblower said, I realised that it was much worse than I'd originally thought. So you, you've, you open up a can of worms and then suddenly you're getting everyone who's ever experienced something similar to that is coming to you. You get, you know, all, all if it's, you know, kids who've been abused, they'll contact you out of the blue. Mm. If it's other people who've seen things, suddenly, like, it, the community sort of... And, and not to mention you know, the Commission of Inquiry, which is collecting evidence. And so she's sitting on these documents and has to give... You know, she, she spends months... She spent months each year for the past three years just providing evidence and talking through it and testifying, and then she gets called as a witness to appear in other people's court cases, gets subpoenaed for class actions and stuff like this. So there's someone Presumably she can't work through all of this. Can't work. She's sort of both too damaged by the experience and just simply doesn't have the time because she gets called away. She had to move interstate, but she gets called back to Tasmania to... to to front up every time something happens, so it's it's a it's a sort of hellish cycle mm. that you get into. And this is someone who's incredibly sort of like brave and correct, like and, and wise and and centred. Like she's she's not uh, not at all sort of flighty or uh, like not trying to pick fights, mm, not trying yeah. just literally trying to be a responsible human. Uh, and this has sort of taken over her life. And it's this is the it's such a common story. I mean, I was so struck by her story because I think when we think of whistleblowers, we kind of think of the high profile ones. Um, you know, you Andrew Wilkie and mm. well, you know, the, Snowdens and Assange. Yeah, yeah. And, and in Australia, we've had we've had our share of high profile um, whistleblowers who have sort of used the media but hers was she hadn't tried to draw attention to herself in any way she'd just done her job Um, and I'm not saying the others necessarily were trying to draw attention to themselves either but I'm wondering how many is there data that the Human Rights Law Centre has on how many kind of people are going through this traumatic whistleblowing process across the country? Well, there was there was a survey done uh, a few years ago of like forty six thousand people across uh, like seventeen hundred workplaces, something like that. And the data across, uh, as as we know it, is that something like forty percent of employees um, will say that they've experienced, they've seen wrongdoing, and most of those people will report it, and. Uh, but only about one percent will actually take it beyond, mm. beyond, beyond, as in take it outside of their organisation. So they'll, they'll normal, normally people will take it to a regulator or to their boss or to their boss's boss. Um, and it's it's when things ha- don't happen after that that you have this choice mm. as to whether you pursue it. 
And, you know, as I say, for the pe- for these people that we're kind of talking about, By the, the McBrides and the whatever, their, their careers are sort of, you know, mm. often their careers are already trashed. Their mm. lives sometimes. Their lives yeah. are, you know, they... Oh, exactly, the description of her health, her weight. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that moment there. I mean, reading about that study was really quite chilling, the scale of it, first of all, that, that there were that many organisations and workplaces looked at in the 40% figure. That's, mm. I mean, that that's huge. And then there's, OK, you go through... You've got, um, you know, your, your clear structures around I can report this kind of thing to this kind of person. Then when that doesn't work, you're suddenly in this position of thinking, OK, well, now there's consequences for my career, for my health, um, whether I'm going to take this up. And that's the, that's the crucial thing, isn't it? That's the, that's the point at which someone who would never have considered themselves some kind of citizen hero to yeah. suddenly think, OK, well, far more than my health and my career is at stake. Yeah. And, and their career really is at stake, mm. as in almost all of the whistleblowers that you would have heard of Every single one of them has not been able to work in their chosen profession, as in mm. I mean, none of them have appalling. been able. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. It, there was um, some, there was a quote from Jeff Morris, who was a, the Commonwealth Bank whistleblower, where he talked about because I, I think t- to your point, Esther, what what I find so sad is they think they still um, have some faith in their employer. You know, they've been loyal employees. They think, I'm just going to report this. It'll be okay. And it's when the scales fall from their eyes completely and then they feel like, well, I've got a moral obligation now and I'm all alone. And, you know, um, I'm interested to ask about... um, what exists in terms of protection laws because Jeff Morris's quote was all they do referring to the laws is lure whistleblowers into the valley of death that is our legal system which is brutal um, so there were at a state and federal level there are some protections that differ from state to state obviously not enough but what what are they yeah so there's a real patchwork and this is the, this is one of the issues so the main for state for for government federal government employees there's something called the public in, public interest disclosure act if you work for a federal government department or organisation there's for private employees there's the corporations act which was is only only changed recently then there's particular um, industries aged care and NDIS have a particular regulator that they can go to state government employees have a different one taxation whistleblowers Parliamentary staff have their own sort of separate ones. Some people don't have any at all. Mm. So, there's, there's, so it's there's, just a mess. There's, it's a complete mess and there's no consistency between the laws as well, as in there are different um, disclosure... Um, there's different levels of disclosure that are counted as whistleblowing. There's different secrecy requirements. In a whole different bunch of, a bunch of different ways... They don't really match. So you, you really need a lawyer to actually sort your way through as in to figure out where you fit mm-hmm. in the scale. Sometimes you, you really do have no protections at all. So I think... Um, and there's no whistleblower authority in, in Australia. So one of the things that um, people have been calling for in relation to the National uh, Inte- mm-hmm. Anti-Corruption Commission, yes. the NAC, is to have some sort of a whistleblower agency or whistleblower authority which will protect whistleblowers who are fronting up. Now, you know, we could we, we could talk about the NAC forever, but, you know, it's this is one organisation. We have very high hopes for it, 
uh, I don't think it's going to do anywhere near as much as we, we believe, you know, that we hope and that we wish. But this is one regulator out of about, you know, out of 15, 20 that, you know, are significant in Australia. The others are all terrible. Mm. Like, regulation mm. in this country is in a sort of critical, disastrous state. The NAC's starting up and we're going, we're thinking, well, everything's going to change now that we've got... This is one one organisation is supposed to look at all the corruption that's happening in this country. They've had 440 reports. You know, they, they, it'll take them a year to do an investigation. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll have a few going at the same time. 440 reports in a few weeks. So there's a lot of people out there who are putting a lot of store in that. Uh, and, you know, one of my concerns is that a lot of people will go out on a limb to report corruption to the National Anti-Corruption Commission and they'll suddenly find themselves, A, not being dealt with quickly enough and, and B, hanging out in the wind without the protections mm. that you would think that which they is, would do. Yeah. Yeah. And this goes to what you were saying about moral trauma, which is the phrase that really jumped out mm. at me. Because um, absolutely, if you think you've gone through the appropriate steps and, OK, well, now I'm just going to sit here and diligently wait for this new institution that I've got confidence in to do something. And then what happens to the whistleblower? What happens to the person? What happens to the institution while they're waiting? Yeah, Mm. and interestingly, one of the the original Helen Haynes version of the National Anti-Corruption Commission had a whistleblower whistleblower, um, representative authority built into the NAC. Makes sense. It does, but it got cut out in I mean, the final it, version. It is so interesting the way the Labor government is sort of playing this whistleblower conversation. Walking they, the line. They talk up the importance of protections but then drop something like that from... And there are the, still some... There are still two cases, aren't there, that the government hasn't dropped against yeah, whistleblowers. Yeah, and they could, yeah. Mm. and and they But they want to... I think, I think whistleblowers, from a media perspective, are, are a very sympathetic figure and Labor wants to be sort of pro-whistleblower, but they also don't actually want any government secrets leaked out now, do they? Um, So in terms of what Kieran Pender is starting to set up, um, I mean, can I just also add, I am so impressed Kieran Pender is only 30. I knew he was young, but when your, your essay mentioned he was 30 and I was like... How many things has that man I skipped done? That part, really. <laughs> um, wow, big respect, Kieran. Yeah, but um, so what is he trying to set up now through the Human Rights Law, Law Centre? Yeah. yeah, so it, he's got his it, the Whistleblower Project. Is it's called the Whistleblower Project, and I think it's it's opening at the end of August. Um, but I think they're already taking the fielding inquiries and. Mm. It's essentially a philanthropically funded, independent of government, um, freestanding uh, and, you know, relatively well-funded organisation. So it's, it's, it's housed under the Human Rights Law Centre. He has a couple of fellow lawyers and there's, you know, a couple of secondees from commercial firms and, you know, all the admin sort of support of the... Human Rights Law Centre, um, and essentially they are presenting themselves as a one-stop shop for whistleblowers. So on the one hand, they'll provide legal advice and, you know, how to blow the whistle, do it, how to do it legally and safely. Mm. Uh, if it's difficult to do it, um, to, if, if it's difficult to do it through the courts, um, you know, if, if you're... They'll, they'll also help get the actual word out, as in they'll help you blow the whistle. And um, so 
it's as much about getting, not just about the protecting the whistleblower, process. it's also about the actual message that the whistleblower mm. needs to get out. Helping them craft that. So yeah, and so like... it's also it also involves sort of, I think, liaising with media occasionally. Yeah. They'll do some of that. And then there's also the sort of law reform and advocacy aspect which they'll, they'll be working on. Yeah, I'm interested about that in terms of getting the word out because that in a way that doesn't automatically put the whistleblower, you know, out there. And there was an example you gave in in the piece where um, Kieran might uh, introduce the whistleblower to a um, sympathetic MP, for example, who can then talk to or release the information under parliamentary privilege and then it's become public and then the media can take the story up. Or I, or, or I assume the, Kieran might be able to introduce them to a sympathetic me- journalist. Is that the kind of thing? I think that's part of the plan. Yeah, and you know he he's interesting because he is a former he's a, a mm. journalist. Yeah, he knows how it works. Just for something else to add on Just. the side. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably writing a piece as we speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and, and there's a lot. There's a lot of strings to what they're doing, and there's a lot of things that people need to sort of understand. And it's it's also about simple things like how to communicate safely. You know, using mm. technology, mm. like how to use encrypted apps and these mm. sorts of things, and and how to not risk. You know, your your livelihood. Sometimes it might just be, it's it it might they might be able to keep the whistleblower out of the conversation altogether and just mm. get the information out mm. there. You know, people, the people I've spoken to, no one wants to be standing mm. up there. It's not it's not about me, me, me. Yeah, it's about what they're trying to do. So, I think in some respects, it's about keeping p- people out of, you know, pe- keeping them personally out of that whistleblowing. Mm. Based on the interviews that you did with whistleblowers, I'm really interested to know your thoughts. If someone was, you know, listening, for example, and they were in a position where they felt that they should speak up about some corruption that they'd seen or, you know, um, uh, illegal practices at work, what would you say is the best way or um, what what would be the safest path, do you think, for, for them to take? Gee, for someone to take? That's a good question. If, if in a month's time I would have a really good answer. <laughs> no, look, I, I think the, look, the primary thing is for people to look after themselves, as mm. in to try to, um, to, 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 to firstly to try to report things internally. Like that really is the first step. Mm. Like it's about doing things the right way. And, and I should add that every whistleblower that we've talked about tried to do the right thing. They tried internally first. Mm-hmm. So I think it's basically a case of going through those steps and trying to, to you know, trying not to destroy yourself. Mm. Like, it, it's to be safe, to look after yourself. That has to be the primary sort of... And, and then, you know, over time, uh, to try and understand what the law is, what's the law that would apply to you in this case? So... I mean, I, I should point out that there actually are legal... There is There are laws to protect whistleblowers. It's just that you need to know how to sort of access them and how to use them. So, you know, it, maybe it's it's to read up about the Public Interest Disclosure Act to find out whether that, re, you know, relates to your situation. Um, but to, to know, you know, don't don't go off half-cocked, mm. I think, is the, mm. is the answer. So hold fire for a month and then call the Whistleblower Project. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> 
Uh, Nick Fike, thank you so much for coming in and chatting about your piece. Uh, listeners can read it in the monthly. Um, there's also um, a great episode of last week's 7am uh, Inside Robo Debt podcast um, from Rip Morton. The episode is called The Whistleblower, where he talks to Colleen Taylor. And it's just a really mm. interesting, just to hear someone's voice, you know, Colleen's voice as she talks th- through her experience. Is, it's a really amazing piece of audio. I encourage everyone to listen. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk. Thanks, Nick. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Uh, I am always, um, I'm always astounded by the brazenness of um, plagiar- plagiarizers, plagiarists. What do, you, what do plagiarists. we call them? Plagiarists, especially in this country because it's such a small media community. But um, Esther, there's a piece in Mianjin currently. Um, the, about uh, uh, some incidents of, of repeated plagiarism in one of our uh, main uh, publishers. Yeah, look, this is just really, really unfortunate. So it's a story by the author Mary Garden. It's called Plagiarism, Cobbling or Accidental Inclusion. And she and some fellow writers who she who she speaks of have been um, noticing over quite some period that um, some of the book reviews by Ross Fitzgerald for The Australian, The Weekend Australian, um, have got some really close resemblances to um, previously published reviews of the same books or the um, publishers' publicity blurbs for those books or uh, the words of authors themselves about those books. And so Mary has put together an extended essay, which is on Mianjin Online. Uh, it was just published yesterday and she um, shows particular uh, uh, text from um, Professor Fitzgerald's pieces and then compares uh, or, or gives that paragraph um, of original text and allows the reader to really make up their own mind. Um, and we've seen today that um, um, although Mary in her piece links quite extensively, quite rigorously to those online reviews which are also mirrored on Professor Fitzgerald's website and one was on a Facebook page. Um, those have all been taken down today. Um, oh, isn't that interesting? It is, but of course Mary has... there has, been a statement um, from, the, from the paper? Or? So um, the, the, the writer but also Mianjin requested comment from uh, The Australian and from Professor Fitzgerald and both of those statements appear at the end of the piece. Professor Fitzgerald has provided a statement um, about his unfortunately continued uh, ill uh, health, uh, physical and mental health. Um, And Carolyn Overington, the literary editor of The Australian, um, has um, uh, pointed to a statement that she made earlier in in, in June, in fact, um, saying that The Australian is looking into the matter. Hmm. I mean, with stories like this, and, you know, we've had a couple of them over the last few years, it's... As you mentioned, Jess, that the shamelessness of doing mm. it in such a small media ecosystem and also to do something that is so easy to prove. I mean, obviously we can't, you know, we can put the pieces side by side and look at it and make up our own minds. But, um, you know, to to take something like that from another writer and, uh, like... How can you do it with such confidence and such brazenness and think that you're going to get away with it? Um, it, And it might be that 
you know, there's just not enough of a, a culture of calling out other other writers. But I just can't fathom thinking that you're going to get away with something like that. The, it's the, the, the brazenness um, mm. is the, is part of the tragedy here. You know, when a writer, uh, you know, think about every book, every novel that we see at a bookshop, um, uh, you know, we're, we're scanning past shelves thinking what would we like to read. Every one of those books has taken years, many years to get to where it is. And so few of those books are ever going to mm. be reviewed, mm. uh, certainly in, in a paper like The Australian. And so to then have that that moment of realising that, in fact, um, the rigour, the, the critique that you'd hoped um, is not only, not only not there, but it's also not clear that the book's been read, um, that is is just shocking. Um, and Mary Garden describes and, and quotes um, the response um, of Joy Lorne, um, who is reading a, a review and realising that, in fact, some of her own words are there. And I'll just read you the passage. I felt so shocked, Lorne recollects. And although it's a cliche, my blood ran cold. I had a strong physical reaction in response to the shock. I don't think I've felt that like that before. The rest of my long weekend was spoiled with a strong sense of dismay and distaste, I felt. I considered and planned what I should do about it. Um, and then... Um, Mary Garden also quotes um, Carmel Bird later on, um, who's also uh, fallen of all of this, and Carmel says, how on earth can he imagine he can get away with it? Perhaps he's been doing it for years. Um, according to Bird, his review was not a, quote, honest reading of the books, followed by a straightforward appraisal, but, quote, a pastiche, a concoction of comments by other writers. I mean... I- it, it's it's painful for the writers uh, of the books whose view whose books are not actually being properly reviewed in in the national uh, broadsheet, and it, it's painful for the writers who have been plagiarised. But it's also just painful as a you know a young writer. Mm. There's only so many places to get published, yeah. and there's only so many places in this country still doing book reviews. I was about to say, and especially for crit- literary criticism. Totally, and and. To be someone who has a, a, a steady gig and to not actually even want to do it, like it, it appears he's been unwell, but to not actually... Stand aside, let someone totally, else have a chance. Not even yeah. reading the books potentially. And it's just like you're you're supposedly supposed to care so much about writing. You're a writer who writes about writing, but you don't want to read. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And and we, you know, I've passed on my best wishes to Professor Fitzgerald personally. We've 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 published mm. our best wishes to him um, um, and really hope that it is a, a good convalescence. Um, and then of course uh, we must um, zoom out to um, the broader impact on Australian culture, on mm. our literary culture, on the um, um, on the, 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 the rigour and vitality of that. You know, why does someone write a book um, to create that sense of um, the rigorous, adventurous, curious culture that we're all a part of so Mm. that we're in the place where we are all creating, you know, the broader culture as opposed to consuming it ready-made, to create a culture where, you know, you pick up a book and it literally transports you, it takes you somewhere else. Mm. Um, And that is just 
it's it's a conversation we've been having a lot this year, particularly, um, as you know, I've just come from the, the funeral of Simon Crean. I've been in a lot of conversations today about what cultural policy means to a nation, about mm. what it means at those highest, you know, levels of government authority to, authority to say, we trust writers and artists. Um, we want you to have the confidence to take the, 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 the wildest, the, the, the most sensitive risks. And that's the literary culture that every writer wants to be a part of. Critique and review literary criticism is absolutely central to that. So we need it, to be honest. And it's sort of heartbreaking as well that in that sort of quote that you read, they were almost trying to give the benefit of the doubt to. Yeah, of course. Of, you know, yeah. maybe it was a prestige, maybe it was accidental. Yeah. You know, which in itself is a little bit heartbreaking because, it, you know... <sighs> Who knows? Um, And you do want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to be overly cynical about it. But at the same time, what a lost opportunity, you know, to have another point of view about a work... Uh, you know, a local work of, of literature. <laughs> oh, that's right. And, I mean, continuing our focus on whistleblowing, Mary Garden, the author of this piece, has written a piece for me, Anjan, on plagiarism before. She has had personal experience, mm. personal family it's experience yeah. of plagiarism, which we can all read about in, in, in me, Anjan, and elsewhere. To be a writer who calls this out also has its consequences because you do think, okay, well, is the literary editor of The Australian, of The Monthly, um, the reviews editor of Mianjin, are people going to uh, pick up my book and review it? Um, And so the person, um, you know, I mentioned that phrase, um, moral injury, moral Mm. trauma that that Nick mentioned, that's not how um, whistleblowing or calling to account should be perceived. We should be grateful. Yeah. to people who speak up about these things and raise the bar for all of us. Triple R. I'm, I feel like I'm being very liberal and I'm, I'm on, in the one hand I'm holding Annabelle Crabbe <laughs> and in the other hand I'm holding the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth Games, Games that never were. Which way do we go? <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Annabelle Crabbe Commonwealth Games. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Follow your heart, Jess. Okay, I'm going to Annabelle Crabbe. I think we can do that quickly. Um, <laughs> I, it's interesting that uh, we were talking about this before we came on air and, and this is why I, I want to sort of um, tease out a little bit of a point of view. Annabelle, it's been announced that Annabelle Crabbe's Kitchen Cabinet is returning. Um, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, um, that's the birthplace of Scott Morrison's curry and us finding out all about it. No, Annabelle Crabbe goes for lunch with uh, a politician and in their home and, you know, we learn to a little bit more about their multi, many dimensions. There was a piece, it, it, it has had its detractors It's it, when it ran before. There was a, a piece, as you're here, Esther, in Mianjin, um, a fantastic piece by Amy Maguire that talks about the risks of humanising politicians in this way. And I think particularly after we saw you know, the results of the robo-debt inquiry and how um, varnishing um, reputation became more important to the government and, the uh, you know, the politicians than actually doing the right thing by by Australians. The part of me is, why is this show coming back? <laughs> and I'm really interested to hear both of your points of view. 
I feel like I'd love to see a new platform for this that maybe isn't the the kitchen, but I can't think of one. So it's it's really, you know, we we need to be able to relate to our politicians enough to not put them on pedestals and enough to, um, you know, uh, never risk not calling them to account. So we need to think of them as as, as human, but we also need to think of them um, as having extremely um, responsible roles um, and. And that even on a soft platform, they do need to be asked the tough questions. I mean, mm. you know, we had a chat earlier about that, you know, journalists who are really good at the charm and disarm. And I got to thinking about, you know, my days in journalism school a very long time ago, where alongside the charm and disarm, we learnt about the seduce and betray. Mm. And that notion of the long-term relationship that you foster with a politician because um, you're going, you're wanting to draw out what is going to perhaps develop into that that big story and that can be long term um, but that can't be a basis for um, not holding to account at the moment mm. Mm. and I mean I think I think the concern with um, with basically the what we saw with Scott Morrison's kitchen cabinet episode was he got to sort of create this daggy mm. dad persona mm. yeah. this, this persona that he began cultivating right many years ago um, that was I think we can safely say uh, a concoction, you know, um, and that seems to be like for a lot of people where that first began, where we saw him mm. like, you know, with his curry. And um, I think as as you were saying, Esther, if we could have something that did humanise our politicians but actually held them to account, them, yes, held them to account and actually try to give us a useful understanding of who this person is, what drives them, um, what they're doing in politics. It isn't necessarily about, um, you know, how much they love Tina Arena. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or the, um, what was, what was he playing on the ukulele? Uh, April Sun in Cuba. Oh, that was, but that was, that was an awful, uh, 60 minutes, 60 minutes yeah. expose. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, with, you know, a, a bit of a Jenny a Jenny um, interview as well. But, yeah, if, if we could have something that did peel back the the politician mm. so that we can see the person underneath but with, without necessarily creating a puff piece, yeah, a piece of propaganda. Yeah, and I'm afraid that, unfortunately, from past, uh, unless the format changes, that this is a little bit more charm and no disarm, this this show and on that note uh our our charming selves are leaving the building (laughs) thank you so much uh rachel and esther this has been so wonderful having you guys in the spin circle thank you always a pleasure and uh we will see more of you no doubt i am going to make sure you are back and that's all for this week thanks for listening you can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform and you can follow us on twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.